Wait, wait, wait. I heard a rumor that both of you guys are thirsty. Is that true? Oh, well, I'm thirsty for a different reason than Elliot is. Let me just say that first uh -huh. and foremost. I'm not that dirty, but no. I'm thirsty because of these allergies. These spring oh, allergies. No. Spring has sprung and my throat is scratchy. And Elliot, been, why are you thirsty? I've been extra thirsty because I realize so much now that on days when I have to do more talking, which I'm not used to in the midst of COVID, I need to, I, I'm parched. I am parched. Mm. <laughs> and so, yes, I've been relying on lozenges, but also I've been drinking can. Oh, oh that's with two N's. What a good recipe. And if you go to their website, drinkcan.com, mm -hmm. and you enter the promo code WORSE, you will get 25% off your order. Can is obviously a delicious uh, THC-infused beverage, 2% THC with a little bit of CBD is in there as well. Low-cal, low-carb. Low Excuse me while I go there right now and enter can. <laughs> yeah, right. That's can That's with two ends. Drinkcan.com. Check it out and use the promo code WORSE for 25% off. I knew these acrylics would come in handy someday. Welcome to your Making It Worse. I'm Elliot Glazer. I'm Brent Sullivan. And I'm H. Allen Scott. We're here. We're queer. Meh. Uh. Textual healing. Well, if you read Yahoo News as regularly as Yahoo I News, yeah, it's like, <laughs> uh, Yahoo is where I have my trashy email account. Like oh, the account I, whenever I sign up for anything online, I use that Yahoo account. Yeah, uh, and and everything. So I, I go there a couple times a day, and and they they do they curate their feed well. But the bad news from this week was that there has been um, a flurry of anti-trans legislation recently, most notably targeted at trans children. Uh, but in North Carolina seems to be sort of leading the crazy pack. Um, yeah. According to an article I read, Republicans there proposed Senate Bill 514, uh, which would ban people under the age of 21 from getting transition health care they need and uh, require state employees to out trans and queer children to their parents. Jesus. A child <laughs> displays symptoms of gender dysphoria, gender nonconformity, or otherwise demonstrates a desire to be treated in a manner incongruent with the minor's sex, they must notify the, cha the child's parents or guardians, the, legislate, the legislation uh, mandates. Um, so, uh, you know, but before we get totally in the weeds, there is a there is a Democratic governor in the state of North Carolina who is seen as unlikely to sign a bill like this. This is are the House and Senate more. Republican though? I think they are. Uh, they are. I don't think that they're strongly Republican okay. enough to override a veto. Um, okay. But this was the case. Uh, it's actually kind of interesting. A couple other states have passed some similar legislation, and there have been several. To give credit, I think where credit is due, there have been several Republican governors that have vetoed some of the more extreme examples of anti-trans uh, legislation that's been passed in Arkansas and South Dakota. Although to be fair in South Dakota, um, for instance, uh, the governor um, uh, passed an executive order banning trans girls from women's sports. And in Arkansas, the legislature overrode the veto from the governor. But there have been some Republican governors that have vetoed uh, these sort of really draconian anti-trans yeah. uh, bills. I think it's particularly um it's particularly nefarious because it's targeted for towards children. kids yeah it's kids. so creepy i this flurry of, of, of activities that are 
that have been happening, especially the Arkansas one, like really chilled me to the bone reading about it. Just the idea of Republican um, uh, governors trying to veto it because it's just so inherently cruel. Um, But I, I think the thing that just throws me about it is the idea that adult people are so focused on children and their growing understanding of themselves like it that that should be the most you should be the most compassionate toward that kind of thing yeah and this bizarre need to focus on it feels so that's what blows me away strangely cumulative the idea that i mean i am uh, it's gross i was texting with a friend who is trans and i i asked her about sort of you know because to me it doesn't feel new i'm sure there's a flurry of these new these new bills that are getting attention online but i'm like this feels like it's it's a constant threat there's a constant mm-hmm. threat of people who are anti-trans largely conservative people who are anti-trans who will go out of their way to make a point yeah. about family values or make a point about their conservatism and they will use trans bodies at the cost to prove their point with no zero idea of the ramifications that and they don't care they don't give a fuck the whole the trans bathrooms uh, issue that was a big deal a couple years ago it was like it was and it continues to be a big deal and those things become sort of like ways for conservatives just to get news articles written about them and to get attention rather than actually being a thing that is needed or warranted or that they firmly believe in. And so they use their bodies at that. And to me, like the kids part, I'm thinking like doctors have found, doctors who, who have studied, who've actually worked with trans kids and studied trans kids have found that the traumatic impact that puberty has on a trans child is lifetime scarring not only physically but also mentally and the idea that that if a child is is clearly showing signs and it's and is taken to medical care that is affirming and inclusive and understands the idea of gender dysphoria and all the things wrapped around gender and can guide that child through the process of transitioning into their full selves then they should be allowed that because science has proven yeah. that they can access that adequately. It's just, it blows me away. It's such a strange thing that you would legislate what, what a private citizen, what a conversation, what conversation a private citizen can have with their medical professionals in a, in, in a room. Like it's, it's, it's and like regardless of the age, regardless in a child, of the regardless of the, regardless of the age, like, you know, I, I obviously, you know, b- believe on the, the, the liberal end of things when it comes to bathroom rights as well, but I can at least, I can understand that they, th- that there's an, that they think that impacts more people, um, uh, who aren't related to the trans community, but I can't, I can't rationalize any reason why a legislator would say these children shouldn't have these conversations with their doctors or yeah. without their parents finding a, or whatever. I just, it just seems- Well, because to them, I mean, to just to maybe understand the conservative point of view, to them, it's all connected. So if you stop a child from being able to transition at youth, right? And let's say that child tra- stops transitioning from or starts the transition process to being a woman and mm-hmm. or to identifying as a woman and then that child that female child wants to go out for the soccer team the girls soccer team at school and then that becomes this sort of oddly uh, case of you know oh well that child has an unfair advantage because of their genetic infrastructure and how they work as a human being and and 
so it becomes this domino effect of like, oh, well, clearly this is a danger then. And it's all connected for them. It's not just this one isolated thing. Uh, for sure. I also think another thing that I think gets lost a lot, and I, I don't hear this sentiment expressed frequently, but I've certainly seen it online, uh, especially among sort of like right-leaning folks is, uh, I've always wondered like where, where is where does their um, resistance to trans people come from? Right. Is it is it an insistence on certain gender norms or whatever? And I always forget, and I've heard this before, like I said, that it's there's also connected with it, which is the idea that God doesn't make mistakes, and that if if someone is trans. Uh, and they're you know, obviously they're dealing with that, then there's an implication supposedly that mm -hmm. God has made a mistake and God g gave this person a, a sense of self, which is male and perhaps, you know, a female, uh, you know, uh, genitalia, I guess. Um, and, and that's something that I kind of lose track a lot, which is mm, like, yeah. it, it all kind of relates, it all boils back down to god you know sky daddy with them you know right sky daddy just so um, gross because that shouldn't so be a part gross. of a political conversation I mean, of, of course not. It just the thing that creeps me out so much from this article too is that they say the bill is broad and could affect tomboys and trans kids alike right. meaning that girls who are who tend to be more boyish mm -hmm. and then trans kids who are figuring out their their gender identity could both be like it's such a fucking shit show yeah. and the idea that that either that either groups are being equated and that they would both get mm -hmm. punished for who they are again these yeah. are children well but yeah. it's also it's a stunt it's like the it's yeah, like it's the stunt. sodomy laws that once plagued the united states that oftentimes and i'm not saying that this law wouldn't be enforced but this is a stunt law. This isn't a law to be enforced. There's a, there's very little way that you could even enforce this law, especially if a medical practitioner or me medical doctor is saying, you know, denying services to a patient in front of them. Like a, a, a doctor who is well researched and is doing their what they've what they've committed to do in their profession, then they wouldn't deny that person service or wouldn't deny right. that patient service. It's these non-doctors out there that are putting these stunt laws out there that can't be enforced, like the sodomy laws, where mm -hmm. they existed just to pinpoint and sometimes use against people if it, if it benefited people, yeah. them, just to terrorize people. Yeah, and there it's and it's disgusting. Yeah, it is. It is unfortunate. Well, fuck them. I say Bye. they can all go. I'm, to I'm church, not church's chicken. What's the chicken place? What's the place you love? The church's uh, chicken. No, Chick -fil -A. not church's. Chick fil A. They can all go stay at Chick fil A. <laughs> well, I'm sure there are plenty of those in, in Arkansas. There are. <laughs> there are. Not even joking. We have, I think, probably for the first time, we can say this, an award-winning journalist. Oh. Like, legitimately, not even, and not one of those fake awards either, like a real yeah. award. Like, he won, he was on Out 100. He also won the GLAAD Award for Best Blog for, and you also wrote a memoir called A Place Like This. I mean, you're, you're, uh, you're probably one of the more accomplished guests we've ever had. Mm. And I'm excited to announce Mark S. King. Hey, Mark. Hi, everybody. Hi. Uh, you know, it makes me wonder about the general quality of who you're having. <laughs> yeah. I should have done more research, perhaps. Well, the people who win our awards are like, you know, they were voted in a queerty poll. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, right, 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 right. Or maybe it was a porn award. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yes, we haven't exactly. had that, but I mean, it, that's the same par as the queer. It's, that, it's the AVN, right? The adult video yeah. news. That's right. Okay. Yeah. 
But yeah, your, Ellie, I, Ellie, I, you li- you live blog for them, I think, as I recall. But anyway, go ahead, Alan. Your blog won the GLAAD Award for best blog, right? My Fabulous yes. Disease. After five nominations. Oh, I'm the nice. Susan Lucci of the GLAAD Awards. Yeah. Many of you over 40, which I guess none of you are, but nevertheless, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wait, but, but so I guess give us like a sort of a, just a very basic summary of like the blog and what it talks about. And what sure. is- I've been writing- yeah. I've been writing all my life since I was 24 years old and I tested HIV positive, which was 1985 Mm -hmm. in West Hollywood in the center of the epidemic. So um, I've been writing about living with HIV ever since. And I think where I found my voice or my niche was talking about it with a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's always been around, you know, one of the first newsletters for people with HIV was called Diseased Pariah News. Mm-hmm. So we've always been a little, you know, kind of giggling through the graveyard sort of uh, humor and <laughs> right. people living with HIV. <laughs> and I just decided to go with it and, mm-hmm. and, and claim my joy and not yeah. let HIV take it from me. And so it's my fabulous disease because if this disease is going to live in my body, it's going to take on my characteristics and I'm fabulous. And, yes. and you get, you get to own it. I mean, I think that's sort of like the, that's the beauty of, if, if, if you are someone with HIV, you get to treat it however you want and you can't yeah. be canceled for being flippant <laughs> or, yeah, no. or, you know, making light or whatever of a situation. Cause it's, that's your experience. It's as authentic as it gets. I think that's great. I, well, you, and you know what, I, that, that's a very nice way to put it. And I exploit the hell out of that every mm-hmm. single day. In other words, <laughs> Oh my God, he said that well, but he's living with HIV. So it's okay. Right. It's like I'm part of a minority, you know, like you can, you can't talk about us, but I can. When we yeah. first started emailing, arranging the scheduling of you being here today, one of my, I mean, of course, you've done a lot of serious work and a lot of serious writing, and you've, 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 you're, you've definitely, you're a very accomplished writer, but in your email to us, just to start off on a, maybe a lighter note, you yes. said that you had slept with Rock Hudson, which oh, right. I, I'm, I particularly am very interested in knowing about, if you could tell us that story. Okay, well, first of all, Alan, I'm impressed that you know who he is. Of course yeah. I know who yeah. he is. Yeah. Rock Hudson, yeah. Well, let me tell you, as the years have gone by, as the decades have gone by, it's no fun telling a star fucking story when no one no knows, one knows who the star is, you know? Yeah. And you have to explain. It it's like explaining Remember the that joke. time I slept well, with Ernest know, Borgnine? He did movies right. with Elizabeth Taylor, who? You know, yeah. so it's like, yeah. but anyway, so I'm glad to ask. And I, I threw it out there in the email because I had a feeling that y'all were a little cheeky and might appreciate a good mm-hmm. story. Please. And, um, you know, it was uh, the early, very early 80s in Los Angeles. And I was out to dinner with my boyfriend. It was our anniversary. And this very low pear-shaped tones came from a table <laughs> behind me. And it was Mr. Rock Hudson uh-huh. speaking to us. Uh-huh. Um, and um, as I would later learn, if you were young <clears throat> and blonde, as I was at that time, uh, and had not slept with Rock Hudson, that was the real story. That would have been. Mm-hmm. The, the, yeah, yeah. You know, right. um, so uh, anyway, we talked, we drank, uh, he came home with us. Mm. Um, and uh, it was our anniversary. And it was, uh, you know, really great. And we played Trivial Pursuit, and he drank all my scotch. And oh. um, and then he says, I say at one point, this was my big move. I said, um, would you like me to roll a joint? Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, well, I, I better not do that because, you know, that would make me really horny. And I'm like rolling a joint faster. <laughs> yeah, right, than right, you know, right. And, uh, How fast uh, can I go? Yeah. Yes, I know. <laughs> and I don't know, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, 
you know, half an hour later, he's taking a shower in my very rusty bathtub. And yeah. this was all a great story. And it was great to tell my friends the next day. I told my parents. I didn't. Tell right, them right. Oh, <laughs> my God. About Trivial Pursuit and all of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then the next thing, you know, he's all over the news because he's got AIDS and it's really awful and it's bursting through the news and cycle. And I'm now watching every night on the news rock hudson die this slow awful death mm, yeah you know yeah. all of the emergency treatments and the flights to paris and rock hudson is getting an emergency transfusion in paris yeah and and i want and he was the first person i'd ever met who i'd slept with who i was had aids you know yeah. i'm the first person i mean people yeah. say oh are you saying that you got rocket no no i'm not saying that I'm carrying Mr. Hudson's viral load. No, I'm saying that I slept with a lot of people, he being one of them, yeah. and it ruined a perfectly good story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Story, that fucking pandemic you know, really ruined that, that damage, the fun of having you know. sex with a movie well, star. Well, Mark, you were diagnosed in, like you said, in 1985. And just to give, because like you said, we have, we, we are younger and there are many yes. listeners who are also much younger. And I don't think a lot of them understand or maybe are familiar with the timeline of HIV mm -hmm. AIDS. And like testing had just recently become publicly available in the mid eighties. Oh. And the, yes. correct me if I'm wrong, but like HIV wasn't even like was that that was 87 that came about right it was well, AIDS we, up until then. we didn't even know what the people started dying in the early 80s and i lived in west hollywood and i mean like people started dying like you were starting to miss bartenders yeah and you know the cute teller at your bank was disappeared over the weekend because he was yeah. dead you know and so wow. it was a graveyard and it was terrible and um and awful and hard to comprehend like how bad this will get or will it mm -hmm. get that bad and we kept kind of living in denial like well maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's really sleazy people. Like I wasn't at the baths every weekend, but anyway, yeah, yeah. then uh, in, uh, they figured out what the virus was in 84 and in 85, they had a test for it. And mm. you weren't supposed to take oh, wow. the test. Yeah. It was, get this, it was politically incorrect to take the test. Why? Don't get tested, all the activists said. Oh, because amongst gay people? Yes. Oh Why? yes, gay activists Why? said do not take the test because the government will then know and they'll mark you and maybe oh. they'll put a tattoo oh, on yeah, you. Yeah, you know, yeah. they, they were talking about sending us off to, they, they were gonna quarantine us to an island somewhere. I mean, they were literally discussing this in Congress. Yeah. Like, said, like with, like the, with the Japanese American internment camps. Oh, almost. exactly. Yeah. I said, if they give us Maui, we'll go. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they, so this was all going on and the test came out in March of 85 and I took it right away because mm. it's like, Hey, I want to know if I'll be dead in two years. I, I would like to make some plans. I'd like to know. Yeah. And and I took it and I was positive. And I thought, okay, there you go. I'm a goner. Mm. And and the long story, the short story is it didn't happen. I, I didn't get sick. I didn't die. I, I just kept going. And I, I started yeah. working for AIDS or organizations and just doing all this stuff. And yeah. yeah, I saw the very best of people and I saw us all have a response and band together and fight this yeah, thing and that's great you know it was horrible and it was wonderful and it was beautiful it's like war you know yeah war. yeah yeah you know let me let me ask you a question as, as someone who obviously isn't completely versed in hiv um every everything related to it and the science and everything the fact that you were diagnosed in 1985 um like, is there, is there something that is, were you a part of like early treatments or, or programs that 
uh, provided you sort of a, a better um, outlook on the disease or did you, did you in a certain sense get lucky? Like, do you know? Well, first of all, I am very lucky. And so mm -hmm. the reason why I'm kind of giddy <laughs> just yeah. in general is because I'm just, I'm just happy to be walking and talking. So, I mean, like I'm great, I'm totally yeah. grateful. So that's my, that's my baseline. But to answer your question, uh, yeah, there are people like me who were called long-term non-progressors. We just never got real bad. Oh, and there is a reason for it. It's a long scientific explanation I won't bore you with, but basically I kind of have a mutation in my body that resists the HIV getting too bad. And oh. those things exist amongst a small group of people. Um, but I, I had to wait for years before the first drug was approved. I had to yeah. wait. And then, then it was one drug. And then a couple of years later, it was the next drug. And we and were they're all probably like, hard to get, right? Oh, well, they were available once they got FDA approval, thanks to AIDS activists beating down the doors of the yeah. FDA. But right. they, they and, and that's, you know, all this accelerated access. The reason why we got a COVID vaccine, our treatments for COVID so quickly is because the FDA runs on guidelines that were put into place because of AIDS activism yeah. in the 80s, when we said, we want drugs and we want them now. Now mm -hmm. speed this shit up. And, and, and they did working actually with a guy named Anthony Fauci back yeah. in the day, he was in charge of how AIDS drugs were approved. And so that's right why on. I'm attracted to yeah. him. There's, I knew there was the, well, since the beginning of the he, pandemic, he did, I was well, like, he's hot for a reason. I remember well, he when the became our ally, he was kind of our enemy at first, but then he came around and helped us work to make uh, uh, drugs approved more quickly. Mm. Yeah. There was that documentary, um, um, I forget, it's like How to Beat a Plague. How to or, Survive or a Plague. How to Survive yeah. a Plague. And I remember watching that years ago and just being so affected by it. And very clearly at the beginning of, of the pandemic, uh, I was like, oh my God, that's the dude from the documentary. Like I remembered mm -hmm. him so clearly because he's so mm -hmm. small and he has that gravelly voice. And it's just, it, mm -hmm. just to put it together. And I was like, he kind of saved you know, in, in, I mean, I, I can't I can't say it, but, you know, a lot of people would say that he, you know, became the ultimate ally for the gay community by helping save everyone and pushing for the drugs. And I'm like, I hope he gets to do it this time again, too. But it, yes. obviously Trump made it as hard as possible. Yeah, right. Right. You know, well, you know, uh, Tony Fauci um, became an ally. He became, and, and he was smart enough to know that the people who were fighting for those things were smart too. And they wanted the right things and they didn't want to do anything stupid. They just wanted drugs faster. That's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Did you, did you feel a sort of uh, a shadow uh, once COVID approached? Did you feel like you, you had- No, that's funny. Know, it's really, sort of... it's funny you should ask that because when COVID was starting, you know, um, and all this attention and suddenly Congress is doing all of these things and everybody is alarmed because their, might, their grandmother might die, yeah. you know, as opposed to like the black, the black trans drug addict that was dying of AIDS or the homosexual, right? In mm -hmm. other words, I couldn't help but first of all, feel pissed off. Like, please stop, you, you know, like, jeez, uh, if only you know, they had paid attention to AIDS like, so there was that resentment, you know? Yeah. But I can't live there because uh, what was also familiar was this sense, like you say, a shadow. It was a sense of how bad will this get? Mm -hmm. Because I remember being there and, and trauma is cumulative, you know, you don't forget. Yeah. And I remember, and I hadn't thought about it in years. And so that's a great question, Elliot. It was like, 
1984 going, how bad will this get? Oh shit, it's getting really bad. And then suddenly everybody, you know, everybody started yeah. rocking. Yeah, you know, I want to say I, just before we, uh, that your book, A Place Like This, chronicles a lot of that period of the HIV AIDS virus and your experience in the 80s in Los Angeles and- Plus how- a lot of sex and drugs and yes. phone sex. Mm-hmm. I know okay. where sex comes from. Yeah. Oh, wow. Really? Yes, I did. Well, I, I, I mean, did. I had a friend, uh, or a friend, I, I worked uh, under a guy a few years ago who um, is in his 50s now. And he said that once, it, once AIDS, the epidemic began, he was, he basically went celibate for, yeah. he said he was like I, almost celibate for almost 10 years. Yeah. Well, so I, or he might have been calling me. That's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I yeah. wonder if like, yeah, phone sex or there were, there were different outlets or ways to- Yeah, to- well, back in the day, um, boys and girls, before there was a <laughs> grinder, before there was the internet, before there was AOL, yeah. there were, uh, before there were chat lines, there was a, a phone, an 800 number you would call and you'd use a credit card and order what kind of man you wanted to talk to. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, a guy called back and he talked something like this and he would be your fantasy <laughs> man. Wow. And yeah. he would, uh, and he would talk to you for about thirteen minutes, is the average phone call. <laughs> and we made forty-five dollars a call for those things. Wow, and, forty-five dollars uh, more money. I made all oh, my coke dealer. The money. Reagan I era guys. <laughs> and, <laughs> me, me, um, I think Elliot still know, calls was, them, but yeah, it was it was an amazing. It was it was. I'll put it this way: I learned a lot about how gay men tick and what they mm. think about when nobody else is listening. Yeah. And, and the, the, the name of the company was Telerotic. Our, and our, our slogan was, our men know you like the palm of your hand. <laughs> well, you also, I mean, you kind of went a couple of years ago. I remember this story. I didn't, I, I just recently connected it, that it was you, but that you wrote somewhere that you had slept with 10,000 people. No, that went, of course, out of hand, I know. And I, I want to, I'm sure people remember this story. So if you could tell me well, how in the yes, world yes, you no, slept uh, with 10,000 right. people. Huffington Post did a, has a, had a podcast series about uh, called D is for Desire. It was about sex in all of its forms. And I was the promiscuous gay guy they interviewed. And it's really simple math, y'all. If you go to the baths and have, you know, a, a busy night at the baths, you have 10 or 20 encounters. And by that, I mean, some tab A is going to touch tab B, you know, slot B. I mean, of some sort, there's going to be some encounter. Uh-huh. Well, you know, you do that a few times a week and you do that for a few years. And bibbidi bobbidi boo, 10 years later, you've touched sucked or you know played with 10,000 guys it really adds up I do, I do like how like bibbity bobbity boop generally means touched sucked and fucked but then in this, <laughs> pretty in this much instance, yeah. it's so funny yeah, to me because the idea of yeah. 10,000 sleeping with 10,000 I don't even want to go to brunch with like friends sometimes let alone <laughs> sleep with 10,000 people like that to me is just astounding did it yeah. feel did it feel uh did it feel like uh um uh I guess uh, there was a set, did you feel a, 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 a shift change in the way that, I'm, are you referring to like the baths as being something like omnipresent from your life before and after um, AIDS became such a big? Well, certainly before. I mean, l- let's recall, let's remember that right before AIDS happened was gay lib. We were at the tail end of the, the, the sexual liberation of straight society and mm-hmm. gay men were finally getting our turn at bat and we were coming out and we were mm-hmm. on the cover of Time magazine. And it was like 
it was like the gay, you know, and this was after Stonewall. This was more like gay men were saying, wait a second, we're legit and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we're going to have a great time. And, and this was the San Francisco clone with the mustache and the shirt and the tight 501. The village people. And we were, oh, Studio yeah, 54 man, era. We couldn't yeah. keep our hands off of each other. And, and, and we were, it was a political statement and it was a statement of freedom to mm -hmm. finally be it. I mean, y'all may be used to it. You may be used to the certain freedoms and sexual environment you get to paddle around yeah. in. We weren't. We were like, yeah. oh my God, this is great. What a playland. And so right. it, you know, we were just tumbling all over each other having sex because we were so grateful. We suddenly were gonna, we felt okay about doing it. So mm -hmm. I'm just saying that there was a heightened, a more heightened sense of yeah. let's just get it while the getting's good because this feels great. Yeah. And then of course, you know, um, as Donna Summer sings, uh, you know, the lights dimmed. Yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah. Let me ask you, like, what was it like to be? You said you were in West Hollywood in 1985 when you were diagnosed. Yes. What was it like to be in a gay neighborhood as this, as really the early stages of this pandemic unfurled, and like very quickly, like you know, like Elliot said, I've met also people who said they were basically celibate for seven, ten years. What was it like going to bars, meeting people? Like, all of a sudden, was there a freeze over social interactions, or was it as oh, yeah. freewheeling oh, as it always was? Yeah. Oh no, it was it was definitely it definitely put a damper on things because mm -hmm. I I moved to West Hollywood straight out of college when, in 1980. I was 19. I could, I wasn't old enough to drink in the bars when I moved to mm -hmm. I got in anyway. And yeah. so it was the 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 contrast between walking down the street in West Hollywood in your little hot pants and your tank top and uh and and cruising men on the street because that's we had to do it the old fashioned way and um, and following them home. You know, I mean, it just, however we did it. And let me tell you the lost art of cruising. Oh my God, I wish y'all, uh, I, I wish there could be a class in that or something because yeah. you're really missing out when you just flip by people because you you, you, you judge them or you, you delete them or flip by them for yeah. one small question they answered wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you, so you flip by them. You don't know what you missed out on. Yeah. I got to see that person and smell them and taste them before I made any big choices about whether or not I was. You yes and to Rock Hudson. I mean, that's yeah. an example right yeah, there right. to say yes right. to a cruise. Yes. Right. <laughs> so, but to answer your question, yes, it was all of those things. It was this magical kind of Disneyland and and then when that happened, yes, absolutely, it had a. It had, but this is also what happened. Yes, the bars emptied out, the bathhouses were, you know, shut down. On a non grata, you did not do that anymore. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, when it really set in, and we knew what we were dealing with. And um, but what happened instead is we like abandoned the 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 the, the Sunday tea dances for town halls. And we were all at the town halls and we were all learning as much as we could. And mm. everybody was caring for somebody. If you had a guest room in West Hollywood, somebody had died in it. Mm. Maybe yeah. more than one. Three died in my guest room, including wow. my best friend. And so yeah. we were all, and you know, I'll tell you, it's horrible. It makes you think very fast about what life's big questions are. I'm 24 years old, yeah. 1985 when I test positive. My best friends are dying. Everybody's dying around me. And suddenly you have to think, what is, what is, what is it all about? Why are we here? Yeah. What mm -hmm. does it all mean? Who is God? I mean, all this stuff. You're. It's like you better figure it out quick because yeah. 
the, yeah. you know, the, well, and, and also, so that's what it was like. That's what it was like. I think a lot of people don't, I mean, connect the reason why here in Los Angeles, West Hollywood is its own incorporated city. And the roots of why it incorporated wasn't necessarily money. It was because of the Los Angeles city's response to people dying of the epidemic in the 80s. They, there, there, wasn't a, there wasn't an active response from the government. So West Hollywood decided to make their own government and do yes, their own actually, thing. Actually, that is true. And that happened while I lived there. And you're absolutely right. It's a fascinating sort of response, civic response. I, I just, yes. oh, go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, all right. No. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, I just uh, my bad. I just looked up the inflation rate for, you said, you on average, you got $45 per call to your sex line. That's right. So in 1990, $45 <laughs> uh, now would be $90. Wow. Be, that's really a phenomenal feat. And I won't join in OnlyFans <laughs> for, own, for more than six bucks. So I really I think well, that's see, an impressive feat. You get to enjoy these new technologies. We got calls from people in Ohio who had never no. talked to a real live gay guy yeah. before they, but they wanted to desperately, you know? And, uh, and that's, yeah, you're right. It was, it was very, it was very profitable. Well, and, are uh, sexier, really sexy too. Like I, I used to, I used to work for Kaplan. Uh, I was in basically tell us that telemarketing sales and stuff uh, way back in the day. And I, always found people's voices like more appealing than after I would like look them up on Facebook mm-hmm. you know, back in the day you could find anyone on Facebook and like yes. I would talk to someone I'm like oh he's cute and I'd look him up and I'm like no he's not but like that happened over and over again voices are very I feel like well, very and appealing. think of the think of the intimacy of the phone yeah. you know here's this guy he's at home he's in bed the lights are all off and I'm not just talking about the sex I'm talking about the intimacy of it yeah. Of, of just whispering in the phone because maybe he's got family on the other side of the house, you know, and he's yeah. whispering in the phone and he's telling you his dark desires. And maybe it's somebody that I talked to a couple yeah. of times a week for yeah. years, which mm-hmm. I did. And I saw these guys through breakups, through coming out, through disappointments, through gay bashings, yeah. all sorts of stuff, you know, after our little sexy time, you know, I'd say, how are you? Yeah. You know, now, the weird part of that is I had to keep up my persona. They couldn't know that I was this skinny, red-haired guy, you know, that was this total geek living in. Not that I am anymore. I know this is a radio show and people don't know what I look like, but I'm a very hot, like, ginger daddy. Now. Yes, <laughs> right, I, right, yeah. right. I'm 60, but I'm I, I, one of those hot ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but back then, I was this skinny little redhead, and um, and they couldn't know that. So I had to keep it up. So they, they told me all this personal, intimate stuff about themselves, and everything they got from me was a lie. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. just started screwing with me after a while. Yeah, well, I, I, I kind of want to ask you about, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about before on the podcast is this sort of disassociation of the community, of the queer community in a lot of ways. And like the way millennials and like Gen Z sort of see older queer people in the community, they're sometimes not welcomed in certain spaces. Or there's this there's this sort of like vibe of a separation between the older queer guys and the younger millennial spaces that are out there. And this is actually a a listener, a good friend of mine, he wanted to ask this question, which I I, I think is so important. Like, how do we sort of change the narrative on bonding between the older generation of queer men specifically who survived a plague with Mm -hmm. this sort of Gen Z millennial generation and and what the lessons can be learned there? Because there does seem to be a divide. Well, there is. And this is the way I look at it you can't escape human nature. And as humans, we collect in groups, 
Are you we sure? Get, we get, Can we, we maybe though? Because <laughs> they make me nuts. We, we do collect in groups. We do set, tend to form little cliques that way. And that's what we're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing is, is that we all have to experience life on our own terms. We can't be defined by the lessons that, we, that, that the, 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 the past generation wants to impart on us. And let me give you an example. When I was a kid, when I was in my early 20s, before AIDS came along, um, there were Vietnam vets on every corner and they were wearing their camo and they were asking for dollars mm -hmm. or whatever they were doing, right? I never once walked up to one of those guys and said, tell me all about it. Yeah. Tell me what happened. Here, let me hear the story. I had no, I couldn't care less. And then pretty soon I had my own more worry about mm -hmm. people living today, guys who are in their 20s, their 30s, even their 40s, they got their own shit. We all got our own shit. And I, I'm not going to use my tragedy, my tragic history as a blunt instrument to club over young guy, gay guys by saying, listen to this, this is what we went through and we all yeah. died. You know, yeah. I wanna share that history. I wanna do it in a way that's accessible and, and lets them hear it in a way that, you know, that's why I try to be entertaining when I talk about mm -hmm. this, this mm -hmm. my history, because maybe some of it will get through and they'll wanna know more. I'm happy to tell the story, but I'm not gonna use it as a blunt instrument because that is not what my friends who are dead would want me to do with their yeah. memory. Yeah. I think that's a great way to wrap up this interview, actually. Yeah, that was perfect. Yeah. yeah. yeah Mark, so. Mark, it was so great. I'm so glad that you were an important guest for me to have on the podcast, for all of us, really. And, and to have that sort of your narrative that is like so different than what I think a lot of queer guys who listen to this podcast probably ever hear or seek out. And so I'm so glad that we were able to give them to, give that to them, but also that yeah. you were free and, and so open to be able to share your story. So well, thank you for welcome. being here. Good for you. Congratulations for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find your blog? Walk, follow you on the internet? We'll see all the, yes, the gym the, selfies the best that you thing to do. My home base is myfabulousdisease.com. You are yeah. welcome to come visit anytime. You can reach me that way. Read some things. Watch my drag videos. You'll have a good time. Oh, mm -hmm. I didn't know about the drag videos. That's exciting. Oh, no. Drag as well. That's exciting. Yeah. Oh, there you go. There you go. Well, thank you, Mark, so much. Thanks. You're Mark. welcome. And another thing. So uh, in this week's And Another Thing, I thought it would be fun to do something completely uh, removed from <laughs> LGBTQ stuff and talk about our dream homes. <laughs> now, a lot of friends- You get one show friends, on but... HGTV and you want to talk about dream <laughs> homes? I feel like I have a very, very small smattering of friends who have purchased homes or are looking for homes. Mm -hmm. And I'm certainly not in that bracket yet, but I do have you know, very distinct ideas about what very my dream home will dream look home like. Is, yeah. so I can start or I could Please Elliot, start because Please. yours is like well, out of reach. Yeah. I love, okay, if people, if people, if they know LA uh, or California, there's a type of home called the Craftsman Home, mm -hmm. um, which is very popular in the Pasadena neighborhood, the east side <laughs> of LA. Well, yeah. there's some of it in Venice too. And but it's basically, Yeah, there's it in Hollywood. It's just a specific style of home that I like. I like that sort of next to a colonial, maybe like a mix of the two. An open something, layout. Mm -hmm. An open layout, something cozy. You know, it's got that, It's it feels um old, but like the inside never, I, I like older, but I like clean. Yeah. So I don't, I do not gravitate towards the like Palm Springs style, like bricks and boxes. I don't like, a, yeah. those scare me. And I imagine like having kids and it being just so, 
I don't know, like so sanitary and artificial. <laughs> so sure. I, I like something. I want something that's a little bit Pasadena, a little craftsman-y. Yeah. Um, but it has to have a pool. There's no way I will live in a home without a pool. I can't imagine. Pools are death traps. Buying but yes. a real estate. Yeah. Buying real estate yeah. without a pool. Um, and I need some. I just, I just want. I want a mix of Pasadena. I want LA, and I want Pasadena, and I want okay. inside and a pool, and I want. Basically, what I want is. Nobody will know this reference, but this show I used to watch, The Fosters, about uh, right. Terry Polo and another mm-hmm. woman were a lesbian couple with like a million foster kids. And they right. lived in San Diego. And the opening to the show was like do, like in like close-ups of blankets and other blankets and oh pillows God. and stuff. Oh my and I was God. like, that's the home I want. Oh I want that God. home. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So what funny. about Brent? Yeah, well, when it comes, I mean, I think I've established this before, but when it comes to homes, I don't want them at all. I, I you don't find want them a terrifying. house at all. I don't want a house at all. I don't, I don't, I don't need a yard. I want, oh. I want to live in a big building. I want a balcony. I want to be able to watch things or people with my balcony. So yeah. I want to be able to drink and get drunk with cars going by. I like oh that. My, God. Yeah. my current balcony. Uh, I have an interior view and I'm just looking at a wall. So I'm getting drunk at a wall. Like that's just not very exciting for me, mm-hmm. but I like, I also like the idea of a, a place small enough and small enough that like, <laughs> if you're terrified that like someone broke in and is trying to murder you, all you have to do is like, look, look in like two rooms and you're, you're like, I'm good. I'm talking that's, about your dream, uh, I mean, your dream house, not the place where you want to get murdered. Literally, no, no, that's, that's my motive too, for my dream home. I mean, Brent and I are very similar in this respect. Oh my God. The idea of being, my mother has always said, don't buy a home. They're a waste of money. They they're ridiculous. Like sure. People yeah. say they're an investment in the future and everything, but the taxes and everything. And then you have to fix shit that goes wrong with it. And yeah. like, all this shit it's just it's just not worth it down the line especially when you're like poor and you're 60 something no i can't take it i Mm -hmm. want to live i mean like i said before i am very aware of the murderer in every aspect of my life and i'm 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 conscious of like when when it's going to come and how it's going to get me and to me i want that barrier of a doorman i want that barrier of an elevator or of five flights of stairs they have to climb up and and if you if you're physically fit enough to climb five flights of stairs (laughs) and then still murder me then i had it coming I you deserve it. Who do you guys think is coming to is coming to murder you? No, there's something creepy about houses. I and I felt that way since I was a kid. And I still even when I even when I go back to even in my 30s, I go back to my parents' house and I'm like terrified to be there alone at night. (laughs) Yes, yes. But there's also something about, and I think maybe Brent and I also relate on this about the uh, 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 appeal of a hotel. Do you know what I mean? That yes. that ho- the, the activity uh, we love. It doesn't matter if it's a Ramada Inn or a Marriott. Like the idea of going in into a hotel and having that space to yourself and just being able yeah. to do whatever the fuck you want. I like in a hotel. that. There's, I, I've always loved Ooh. the idea of being where there is activity my entire yeah, life. Same. I like that, and so I there's like. I love hotels. That. I love big buildings because you're like there's people around. I hear humanity when I when I get sick. It's, you know, especially living alone when you get sick and that's kind of isolating. I mean, yeah. just like cold, you get a cold or a flu or something. You're like, I can still hear humanity. And I yeah. feel like I'm, a, I'm amidst. But, and if I like, if I, if I die in my studio, I'm like, they'll find me sooner rather than later. Right? But my mom has always <laughs> said that the type of vacationer you are is indicative of the type of home you own, which like, which is true for me because I, the idea of going to a remote place and just like casually living for a week is like, 
that's the that's the worst vacation possible. Horror. I want to be in a big city. I want yes. museums. I want access Moscow, to shit. I want bars. I want Mexico stuff. City. Yes, it's Cuba. Anywhere in Cuba. Well, not anywhere, but like wherever the big city is in Cuba. Like I, I want the yeah. big cities. I want the big yeah. places. And yeah. I know Elliot, you love going. You you drive middle of nowhere just <laughs> to like for look seven at a tree. Just to take a hike. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <that's> true. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to live in the. I don't. I do not want to live anywhere rural. I don't want to live anywhere that feels uh, empty or anything. But you want like to live that. in a house that feels like that. No, I want to live in a house where I know I'm like surrounded by other people, but it's I can still have peace and quiet and sure. a hammock and a pool and I can have yeah. people See, that's over what I'm and room for the dog <laughs> to run. I basically want to live in a Nancy Myers movie. And yep. okay. to that point, my one of my good friends, Catherine, grew up in Pasadena and her parents' house was scouted by Nancy Myers. And they oh, know wow. full well that I would do anything to own a home like theirs. <laughs> yeah. True. Nancy beautiful. That, that is a dream. That's but I want to have that right? in an apartment. I want. Yes. I want to. I remember. I saw the mon. All of the Monica. hammock in the apartment. The uh, the Diana Ross Brandy movie from the eighties, where like she's <laughs> separated at birth or whatever. And in her penthouse apartment, there were stairs. Like it was a two floor apartment. Yeah. And I just remember being blown away that an apartment could have that. And I was like, done. I'm gonna live in a penthouse. I know. I done. know. <laughs> you want to be. You want. You want the. You want Carol Radziwill's apartment. <laughs> No, not well. Yeah, sure. I would take that. I would take any big. A lot apartment. of deep cut references in this conversation. <laughs> no, that's yeah. that's not that deep a cut. But I, I would also, I would also enjoy, like, in my wildest dreams, I own a home in L.A. and it's big and quiet and lovely and all that stuff. And then mm. I have a pieta tear in New York. Oh my god! My family. What the fuck life do you live? <laughs> Just looked up what that is. I literally this week I looked up what it what is a, like a one bedroom apartment just to sleep yeah. in on Friday night. Yeah, uh, you see small, like a small cats. apartment that I can go that I can go to and like see theater and you know use when I go theater. to town and see meet the men, meet men. Let's <laughs> yeah, be that's honest. basically what it is. No, you know Perez Hilton. This is apropos of nothing, but Perez Hilton lives in an apartment in New York and has a separate one in the same building that he just uses to hook up with guys. In. Where is he getting money? Where Great is question. he getting money? Yeah, right. Good I don't know. Question. Fuck him. What would your aunt say? Brent, what would your aunt Ramona say about something she heard on today's show? I was in the bedroom and bibbity bobbity boop. Your uncle Hamilton sprained his back. <laughs> my Hamilton, Hamilton and Ramona. What a, what a cut that those names. Oh my yeah. God. Um, my aunt Joanne would likely say, you know, Ernest Borgnine isn't so hard to look at. It's not so, it's not so hard on the eyes. <laughs> easy on the eyes. Just like easy on the eyes. Larry, just like <laughs> right. How about Aunt Anne? My Aunt Anne would say, I don't think they should be taking medical services away from anyone. In fact, I think they should be given medical services. I could use some Botox, maybe a lift. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Elliot Glazer. I am Brent Sullivan. And I am H. Allen Scott. 